Well, hello everyone, and welcome to the latest episode here on RNFM Radio. This is being recorded July 15th, 2014, and you are tuning in to episode 120. This, of course, is RNFM Radio again on the pulse of nursing. And who are we? What are we? Well, we're the leading platform for nurses, and we're thrilled to have you tune in for the latest news, trends, and hot topics with the leaders and thought provokers in our industry. Now, of course, you can always find us over at rnfmradio.com. Our podcasts are over there. We're also on TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, and of course, proud members, yes, very proud members of the ProMed Network at promednetwork.com forward slash rnfmradio. And we are on every social media platform out there that you can imagine because we are everywhere you want to be. And you can follow us under the hashtag RNFM Radio and find us. And of course, we will engage with you and get back to you. So hit us up under that hashtag RNFM Radio. So who am I? Well, Kevin Ross, your co-host here, and I'm hanging out in my studio in Colorado. My fellow co-host, he's always down there in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Maybe not always. There's been a couple of times where he's not been uh, when we've actually had the show. So Keith, Today in Santa Fe, New Mexico, how are you doing today, sir? I'm good, Kevin. It's great to hear your voice. It's always refreshing and just brings a smile to my face to be here on the radio with you. Welcome, everyone, to episode number 120. We have a lovely and intelligent and savvy guest for you today who I met at the Infusion Nurse Society Conference in Phoenix a few months back. And we can't wait to bring her on and talk about her research and the really great work she's doing out there in the world. So, Kevin, why don't you... um, say anything else you need to say before I introduce Jennifer? Well, no, I'm really excited to bring Jennifer on. So really, like I said before, everybody can find us at all of those hashtags and URLs, rnfmradio.com. And of course, oh, don't forget, you can definitely leave us a voicemail or text us at 720-466-3022 or any emails to insider at rnfmradio.com. So the mic's back to you, Keith, because let's get this show jump started. Great. Thank you, Kevin. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce Jennifer Troutman, family nurse practitioner. She's originally from Ohio. After serving in the ROTC, she was an Air Force nurse officer, and she's also worked in cardiology, emergency, and pediatrics. Jennifer has a PhD in nursing. Her dissertation concentration in ethics was specifically focused on moral distress in nursing. In her next position, we'll be working with Dr. Deborah Gross at Johns Hopkins as a postdoctorate fellow, and they'll be focusing on Dr. Gross's research in parenting and early childhood behaviors. We've invited Jennifer here after I heard her speak at the Infusion Nurse Society conference very eloquently, I may say, about her research in moral distress. So Jennifer Troutman, welcome to RNFM Radio, and we're so happy to have you here. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me, and um, this is a real honor to be asked to talk with you. Oh, thank you. Well, it's our honor and pleasure as well, and the pleasure and the information that our listeners will glean from this conversation, we're sure we're going to hear about in the months to come as they tune into this recording. So when I met you in Phoenix, it was right after you spoke up on the stage about moral distress. And I'd been writing a lot about emotional labor in nursing and compassion fatigue, but this whole notion of moral distress was really new to me. Can you say a little bit about how you became interested and how you realized that this was an issue in nursing that deserves our attention? 
So the way I really got interested in ethical dilemmas and moral distress was a particular case that I came across in my work as a a nurse practitioner. We were stationed in Alabama and I um, worked in a free clinic and um, I provided healthcare and medications for uh, the underserved um, citizens in the area of Montgomery, Alabama. And um, I also worked in the emergency department um, with my supervising physician in Alabama. And I had a patient who um, had very severe hypertension and she had to take a lot of medications to control her medic to, to control her hypertension and um, she um, was able to get better and she got a part-time job which then didn't allow her to have health care with me anymore because she made um, more money than 200 percent below poverty level which was one of the um, constraints of the clinic and I saw her in the emergency department and um, she was there for um, hypertensive crisis and I knew that um, she needed her medications but I knew that um, to get primary care for a patient who did not have health insurance but also didn't qualify for the free clinic uh, option what is the ethically right thing to do for this patient. Do I give her medication for a couple of weeks and tell her that she needs to see a provider outside of the ER? Or do I um, take a lot of time with a you know patient and try to connect her with resources that are available, which in that area, very few resources are available for like a fee-for-service um, type of clinic? Or do I... Um, just treat her in the emergency department and then tell her that um, we're going to try to find her a provider or try to get her admitted. I mean, there's just a lot of different scenarios that can come from that case. And so I just was really stressed by this scenario, which I saw more than once a shift. And um, we did eventually take care of this woman and I was able to get her back into the clinic but she did suffer a um, a health emergency by having a a stroke that she did fully recover from but it was because we there was no connection between there there's no safety net between the emergency department and primary care and so here that was the beginning of my research um, interests Um, and when I came back to the University of Virginia I worked with Dr. Hamrick and Beth Epstein, which um, they are researchers in moral distress and um, nursing ethics in our area. And uh, I started to talk to them about this case. And I have been working on um, developing a manuscript with that case in mind. And also then they helped me develop a study where I looked at, um, do other nurse practitioners that work in emergency departments have similar concerns? Well, and I would assume whether nurse practitioner or any type of primary health care provider out there or advanced uh, practitioner, I would say yes. Um, and, you know, I want to go back to the safety net that, you, that you're talking about and really the absence. And, you know, why is it absence and, and or absent? And, 
you know, what's with this lack of continuity of care? Why, why can't we achieve that? I mean, I think I just had about a hundred questions just pop in my head. So <laughs> I want <laughs> right. to, I don't want to like diversify here and just explode, but I, you know, I think as nurses, I, I'm not at advanced practice level, but as a nurse, you know, I really feel like, um, I do want to go that extra mile for my patient and I do want to extend as, as far out as I can, uh, for them. But we do see fragmented care and we do see, and of course, I know we're starting to open a can of worms here when it comes to the, the fractured healthcare system itself, but right. there's a lot of policy out there. And, and I hear a lot of healthcare providers say, I just want to practice. I just want to help. I just want, right. please leave me alone. I just want to help my patient. And I, I can see where that, the impetus uh, is coming from that in the sense where, you know, we hear people saying, well, we need more government there to help you know, because there's a lot of bad stuff going on. But I don't think people really realize that healthcare providers themselves, a lot of that needs to be trimmed and that red tape needs to be sort of put away so that we actually can practice because we truly want to practice and help these right. patients. That's the end goal. I think our hearts right. are in the right place. No, I, I do too. Um, and it's um, making sure that you do hear the clinical practitioner's voice. Um, I think sometimes... Um, providers don't feel like they really truly have a strong voice when it comes to these, you know, healthcare policy problems. Uh, you know, we, a few years ago, not that long ago, and as you know, dissertations take a long time to finish. So when I started this research, I really was like, and, and the Affordable Care Act is going to come in and, you know, help this safety net and make this, you know, problem be a lot more, you know, um, solvable. And, you know, I kind of had a very optimistic um, thought in it. And I, I still am optimistic. And a lot of great things are going to happen for um, providers once this all gets ironed um, out in the in the small you know in the small nuances of this program. However, you know what we didn't realize was going to happen is the fact that states might not opt into some of the other insurance um, gaps that really have strained um, what the Affordable Care Act is going to be able to cover. So there's still a subset population out there that does not have insurance because of this gap issue that some states have not picked up. And and there's several states that have said we can't afford to, to do the gap for the Medicare and Medicaid. And it's only by talking to practitioners <laughs> and understanding your day in and day out practice that you find out these problems, these wrinkles in the process. And that's why this question was so um, motivating as a research question and for my dissertation. It was something that every time I sat down and worked on this research, I still was really interested because I I have to walk into practice and and try to solve questions similar to the one I just um, talked about every day and um, so that's that's why um, I was so interested in in looking at this and then you understand when you are always constantly 
trying to go the extra mile with every with so many different types of problems then you understand why burnout occurs why staffing issues are a problem why um, there's a lot of um, just uh, lability within the staff of either experience or um, shortage those types of things so I it all comes it all kind of has a, a, a effect on all these other um, issues that are also really important to nurses such as compassion fatigue and and those types of things you're so right jennifer thank you for pointing all those those aspects out and if we take the the focus and broaden it we know that it's not just the what we could say the the lack of health care coverage and insurance for so many Americans that we nurses and nurse practitioners run into on a daily basis, especially in the emergency room, I would assume, when people come in and they're trying to get their primary care in the nurse in the emergency department. But you also mentioned in some literature you sent us that there have been studies reporting moral distress being a significant indicator, it said, of one's intent to leave their position. Right. And it also was a predictor of emergency room nurse practitioners specifically intending to leave their position. So it sounds like there's been more research on staff nurses than nurse practitioners, but it sounds like this research has kind of opened up the the Pandora's box, if you will, of how moral distress is affecting nurse providers. Right. Uh, so there are there is quite a, there's a lot of research out there on moral distress. Um, and I think that each specialty in nursing, uh, feels that they have different root causes or, uh, problems that cause their, um, moral distress in practice. And so that's the beauty of research is that you, you look for, um, the predictors and the, um, what other, um, is there anything else in practice that causes nurse practitioners to say, I, I can't do this, um, position or profession anymore. And so when you look in the literature, uh, there's some literature about, um, nurse practitioners in general, there was no other, um, research on specifically nurse practitioners who work in emergency departments, but you're, a lot of things that they had trouble with were definitely insurance constraints, um, uh, staffing uh, ratios, uh, working with um, staff members who may not have the same type of experience or um, leadership uh, concerns as they did. Staff communication was a big predictor of wanting them to leave. But we throw, like, we would put into our statistical analysis all these different indicators and predictors and every um, every time moral distress this when we would ask nurses or nurse practitioners or other professionals what um what caused their moral distress the folks who had high distress scores were more likely to leave or they did leave their position 
or even their profession. And that was, and in the study that I conducted for my dissertation, moral distress scores was the only significant predictor um, that um, that was um, positively um, indicating that a nurse practitioner was going to leave their practice or position. So um, it's it isn't the only um, predictor, I don't think, because I think there's some other questions and some other aspects of our practice that needs to be explored. Um, but um, I, I did try to look at, see, to see if like um, independence, uh, independence of practice was, um, a, was there a relationship between moral distress and whether or not a nurse practitioner felt like they were very independent in their practice. And um, I could not, I did not find it, that relationship to be significant, um, but there was a somewhat negative correlation in my um, research, which means if someone had high um, practice independence, they felt like they had a lot of um, autonomy in their practice, then their moral distress scores um, might have been a little bit lower, but it was not significantly lower in my research. So we did look at some other aspects, but moral distress, if they, if you have high levels of moral distress in your practice, um, it is a it is a tremendous predictor of your um, intent to leave your position. And that has been found in several studies, particularly using the instrument, the Moral Distress Scale Revised, um, which is a instrument that Dr. Um, Corley from VCU um, invented um, back in the late 80s, early 90s. And then Dr. Ann Hamrick revised the scale to make it a little bit shorter. And um, it is a, an instrument that has um, been widely used in the literature to ask professionals about their moral distress specifically. And that's an important point because a lot of there's a lot of studies out there that look at ethical climate or ethical stress or emotional stress, psychological stress, and then um, the authors possibly could um, make a determination that perhaps these um, participants in the study were experiencing moral distress, but um, it's, it's hard to really discern moral distress from other ethical um, information or study material. Well, and that's actually where I wanted to take a step back, at least for the audience, to really distill it down further if we could, just so that there's a, a better level of understanding, if possible, about the differences between ethical dilemmas and, of course, moral distress and why these might seem to be one and the same or why there's some confusion there. So is there any sort of just definition that would allow the audience a little bit more clarity between the two? Sure. Um, the the definition that most researchers use in the literature is one from Jameton, which um, is an, an OBGYN nurse from the um, that wrote about it back in the in the mid '80s, and he, um, he stated that moral distress is defined as a situation in which one believes he or she knows the appropriate ethical action to take, but is unable or is constrained to take that action. 
Whereas an ethical dilemma is a situation where two morally different but acceptable acceptable courses of action or a situation with two morally unacceptable courses of actions um, are possible and a choice is needed to resolve the conflict. Um, so that's moral distress is could arise from an ethical dilemma, uh, but an ethical dilemma um, will need some sort of resolution where a moral distress sometimes cannot be completely resolved. And um, so, and there is um, research and concept concepts that have been um, formulated um, on this phenomenon of um, having a constant source of, of moral distress in their practice. And that's um, called moral residue, where every time you have an episode of moral distress in, with a case, uh, and you can, you just, if it finally goes away, or um, you move on because you have other patients, or you another day goes by, and then you'll get another case where it's very similar to the case that you had last week, or last month, or last year, and um, you're like, here we go again. That's the kind of feeling that you have is I had a case I feel like just like this last month and I didn't know what to do then and I you know um, and I know what I think I should do but I don't think we're going to be able to do it um, again and so then you have this crescendo effect where you constantly have this little bit of residue that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and then you um, and what we're worried about is that then the provider um, just gets to the point where they have such compassion fatigue about this that they no longer want to practice or they become very detached from their caring uh, about what they're doing for patients and their families. Well, you know, Jennifer, I just really quickly, and Keith, I don't, I'm sure you've got something here, and the moral residue out of the almost three years that we've been doing this here on RNFM Radio, I think that statement, just those words and just the residue, that is really defining for me. Like, I visualize that. Uh, I can see, I when you said that, like, I, like, a light bulb went off. I was like, yeah, that's right. Moral residue. I just love the way that that sort of captures uh, the essence of really what's going on there. So, and I don't know how you feel about that, Keith. Oh, very, very much so. And when I first heard Jennifer talk about this at the conference in Phoenix, it really made the light bulb go off for me too. And then the crescendo effect for me, it's very visual too. I'm a metaphorical thinker. And for me, for crescendo effect, I picture actually waves. It's sort of like, it's like a drowning nurse. It's like, okay, there's there's been moral and ethical dilemmas and the water's up to the knees and the nurse is feeling a little um, out at sea, so to speak, pun intended. And then the crescendo effect is when, you know, the water level's really up to your nose or eyes and you feel like there's no escape, that the moral residue has just kind of taken over your practice and that there's no way around it, there's no way through it, and you feel squeezed to the point that the research shows that the intent to leave the position or the profession gets to the point where 
it's it, there's no question of leaving, that it's time right. to go. And that's, I think, Jennifer, why this research is so important, just for us to be aware that this is even happening. Because I think a lot of us, we're not even aware because we're in the middle of it at all times. Do you think that's the case for a lot of us? I do. I think that what happens is that nurses know that there's something, obviously there's something going on. And uh, we tend to not take the time for ourselves because we're always thinking about outside of ourselves. We're caring for others. Uh, and we're, and a lot of nurses, depending on where they work, they feel like they're doing the work of 20 <laughs> off sometimes, or it feels like it. And um, so they can't even take the moment to um, really do the introspective thoughts of, you know, what is going on here. Also, when it comes to like staffing concerns, like if you are a nurse manager or you're in charge of a department or, or um, something like that, this is something that, this is the finger on the pulse type of feeling that I think that um, administrators need to understand, but they're even experiencing, there's literature that talk of, talks about how they're even experiencing moral distress because they know they need to help protect their staff, but they also are getting a lot of, you know, um, pressure from the financial or the fiscal side of the enterprise. So they have a lot of conflict um, as well. So sometimes they can't protect um, the ones that are doing the work and then because um, that's their job they're supposed to be kind of filtering all the the stress or the uh, goals by, from the from the, the higher ups in the administration to here's what we need to get done and then they also understand you know there's just other elements to patient care that need to be addressed as well so there's there's quite a bit of, there's so much going on here, but we're all so busy and then we're all so tired and we're all over, you know, we're all in overtime at the same time <laughs> that I think that staff meetings sometimes just, they don't get this moment to, to have an educational moment to talk about. Let's talk about the stress that we are experiencing in our practice. And so I think it's wonderful that like the Infusion Nursing Society that I spoke at had an entire section for care, caring, care, caring for the caregiver, basically, which is taking care of the nurse or the practitioner or the provider that is doing this, doing all of the so-called task-oriented work and how how do we take care of them how do we make sure that they want to come to work every day and and show um, the compassion and the caring that everybody dreams about when they sign up to to do what we do so um, I think that um, I think just giving them a voice giving it a definition. And then I also think that um, one of the things I tried to talk about is um, how do you express yourself to other colleagues um, ab about what you're experiencing in a positive manner. Um, and, th and that's something that I think that we can work on um, together in nursing in general.
Well, Jennifer, so many salient points there that we could really expand on. I wanted to just go back just briefly what what uh, Keith was waxing poetic about regarding the waves and, and your introspection. Because as a former surfer myself, I look at the wave and say, that's not my wave. That's not the one that I want. So I get to to go into myself and say, okay, this this next one coming up or the one after that, that's the one that I want. But but nurses don't get a chance to do that. I mean, obviously, you can't, we can't always be philosophical about our approach and our careers and stuff. I mean, I do try to do that, but but sometimes there's just not time enough. And so the waves just keep coming and then we, we don't catch a breath. And so we get pulled under, we try to come back up for air, and then we just get pummeled again by another wave. And you're talking about some of the solutions here because we're talking about communication, communication style, really having a platform that welcomes the opportunity for nurses or just other clinicians really to, to communicate like, this is what's going on. This is how I'm feeling. Um, can I have a little bit of say on where I think we should be heading? And so it sounds like you at least have your own personal philosophy or professional philosophy and, and what you either do in your own practice or what you would recommend to let's say, an establishment. So it sounds like you've got at least a finger on the pulse on some solutions that we need to really be looking at so that we can kind of stave off, especially with that moral residue that just keeps building and building and building and those waves that just keep pummeling us. Well, we try to come up with solutions and they're not, it's not easy. It's when it comes to moral distress, it's something that staff do really care about. And it's amazing when I think and I think Keith saw this when we went to this conference, a lot of um, participants are very interested in hearing about this phenomenon. However, it is, it's what we're struggling with in research is how do I make the connection that if we address moral distress, moral residue, crescendo effect, um, how I want to show you that if we address this um, by... Um, teaching our nurses and providers communicating in a positive um, manner and um, listening to each other's concerns and coming up with a, you know, a combined solution or steps towards a solution uh, or acknowledgement of what the problems are with a particular case then um, also we have um, a moral distress um, consult service where an entire like um, department or um, unit can call um, in our particular institution and ask for help with um, talking through some of the problems that they are experiencing in their unit or department um, with moral distress and with staffing um, dissidents um, when it comes to what should we be doing when it comes to a particularly exhausting patient um, or, or some such um, case. These are some things that um, I think are really important, but to to, to garner support from the administration or to garner funding to continue our work in making solutions for these problems. That's what my job is <laughs> as a researcher is to make a connection where if we address the moral distress, then maybe fewer of your staff members will want to leave. And if you keep your staff happy and less stressed morally, you will have an experienced 
uh, staff that will be giving the quality of care and um, the patient outcomes that you seek for your institution. And that is kind of where I'm going with the research that I did for my dissertation. Well, and I just wanted to add, is that getting on the radar? Because we know patient outcomes is extremely important. We can talk about nursing shortage, and we know that there's a direct correlation. But when you say patient safety or quality of care, because organizations are getting hit with that, you know, penalized, either reimbursed or not reimbursed or partially reimbursed. Um, so is that getting on the radar? Right. We So there was a study that was just finished um, with a um, group between Canada and the U.S. that um, my, one of my mentors, Dr. Ann Hamrick, is just finished working on. And I'm waiting for those results to be published. We haven't seen them yet, but they were, that study was trying to look at patient outcomes and um, it, was there any correlation or relationship um, with moral distress scores from the uh, nurses and providers that were within that institution. So yes, we're we're getting there, but it takes a it takes a lot of research to um, reach reach around to to show the to show the relationship, and that's um, that's what is so um, interesting as a researcher about trying to show that connection it's it's it seems very easy in our minds or when we're standing there experiencing it but to to really put it into black and white for others who are controlling our staffing or our funding for what we do that that's the part that um, we're working on daily to um, show if we address this and and then now we're trying to show you this intervention will work <laughs> for this problem um, and that's those are the kinds of things that um, we need to to work even harder to show that relationship right you need to demonstrate it so that those who are holding the purse strings for instance will say yes we'll spend money on right, x exactly. intervention because it will actually improve our outcomes lessen attrition of our providers and also increase our reimbursements. So understandably, you want to have very solid evidence to present so that these these interventions, you can actually demonstrate that they're effective and that, the like I said, those who are, you know, holding the money will actually put out some funds to, to intervene at the right level. Right. And we know that we know that we're experiencing it, like you said, but getting it down on paper in a way that is useful to us on the ground is challenging. And you sent us a list of some books that were really interesting. One was by Anne Hamrick and Beth Epstein. It's Moral Distress, Moral Residue, and the Crescendo Effect. That was actually, that was an article in the right. Journal of Clinical Ethics. Mm-hmm. And then the Hastings Report in 2010 was an article on moral distress. And I just found one that you recommended, which was the four A's to rise above moral distress. That was written in part by Cinder Rushton. And that's the American, who published that actually? The, um, it's the Academy of uh, Critical Care. It's a critical care 
Yeah, the nurses. American Association of Critical Care yeah, Nurses. So yes. I'm looking at that PDF here. It's a 14-page mm-hmm. PDF that you can find online. Just go to aacn.org slash WD slash practice. It's actually a long, um, a long URL. But if you go to aacn.org or just Google actually moral distress in nursing, it comes up on page it one. It does. <laughs> yeah. It does. It yes. does. Yeah. So that's a great place to find that, the forays to rise of moral distress. And that's a tool it seems like administrators and managers and nurses can just use on the ground, right? Right. We talked um, about this. It it kind of has a, um, a cyclic kind of um, mnemonic or diagram associated with the forays. And it, it helps you address and... Um, and take an action as part of it. But I really think that the article by um, Dr. Epstein, who is my advisor, so I have some, um, you know, I have some partiality to her. And doc, um, and Sarah Delgado did an article about understanding and addressing moral distress. And that article, I feel, really um, connects you with some of the really key elements of moral distress, what it is and um, how do you address it in clinical practice. And they give you some um, very clear cut, um, what causes moral distress, what do you look for, how do you connect to your staff or to your unit about addressing moral distress and then gives you some concrete pearls to go to your go back to your unit and say let's try this mm-hmm. and that's something that um, I think that that article brings to the table and then if you're just very interested in just the pillars of um, ethics which is autonomy respect for autonomy by beneficence maleficence and justice um, Beecham and Childress about every few years, um, send out um, a, a text called Principles of Bioethics, which a lot of um, universities use for like their understanding of, um, like it's their kind of primer for bioethics and um, really um, helpful um, in kind of defining and um, the philosophy behind the each of the pillars of bioethics and how how you kind of can connect it helps you connect your case in practice to why does it why does it really hurt me so much morally <laughs> you know like what is it what is it t- hurting and and it and it kind of helps you um, define um, what is making it so difficult to solve the problem and right. that's, why that, that's why that text is really helpful. Right. Why does it hurt so much? That's a right. really, really good question. And, you know, something I've been reading about and writing about a little bit recently over the last six or eight months is emotional labor. And we've talked about that here on the show a little bit. And for those of you who are listening, emotional labor is defined more or less as the ways in which you, as someone dealing with the public, has to actually turn off your emotions and possibly project an emotional state that you're actually not feeling. And there's cognitive dissonance that happens in your 
mind and your psyche based on what's going on for you internally and the way that you have to present yourself to your patients who are right in front of you. So Jennifer, what's the relationship between moral distress and emotional labor? Have you seen one? Well, I was, I really am interested in this um, connection because I've not um, really connected this in the literature yet about um, emotional labor and moral distress, but I really do think that there is a, um, a connection. And I think that um, this is what, this is part of the um, crescendo effect that occurs with moral distress. And when you're having so, um, you're having these feelings build upon itself more and more and more, I think then um, what happens to some providers and nurses is that they pull away from the from the patient or the family um, because they feel like they just can't invest any more of themselves into this reoccurrent condition and they just don't have any left to give um, basically and um, so I hope I'm not I think that's kind of how these concepts can be connected and I'd be very interested in someday looking at um, looking into how these concepts um, are related um, in a study with nurses. Well, and speaking of all these studies, we know that this is definitely being studied extensively. So, and I know throughout this conversation uh, today with you, you've peppered in little tidbits, little nuggets of advice for our listeners. And again, talking about that distillation bringing that down even further or an abstract or the jacket cover of the book or whatever, what advice are you getting? What are some salient points for our nurses to understand? So they might be at a breaking point or almost there and they're not looking, they don't want to get away from the clinical practice. They, they want to stay put. So what, again, if we can leave with them some nuggets from you, how do they make that happen so that that can be a sustainable practice? And then the second part of the question is, are you yourself still in a clinical setting? Sure. For nurses listening um, and providers listening that want to continue to stay in clinical practice um, but are wondering if how much longer can they do this, I think that um, you really need to take care of yourself first. And um, this is not something that is easy for us as nurses or providers to do because we're taking care of everybody as well. Um, but um, I think that this is something that can be fostered in team, um, in a team feeling that um, I think that is not an unusual concept in um, practice and um, departments or units. And I really try to encourage um, the nurses and the staff and the providers I work with that I really appreciate how much they do for our patients and families. And I want them to know that someone else sees their work, that, you know, what they're doing does not go unnoticed. And that um, making the patient care and the family care, a priority of their day um, is really important. And I think sometimes when you get really detached from what you're doing as a provider or a nurse, because you're so exhausted or um, 
upset morally by what you're seeing that sometimes you have to um, try to um, become, you know, work on this uh, concept and within yourself. And I think it's really important for nurses to go and get continuing education for their profession and specialty. Um, I think it's a renewal point. It's almost, um, I think of it um, as just, it's like you get a little bit rejuvenated by seeing other um, nurses from other parts of the country or the world and know that you um, are feeling the same. They have similar concerns um, or they have very different um, understanding of what's going on or maybe their laws are different even. But it's amazing how much information you can get from another um, unit or another health system and you just never would have come up with that on your own or they I love looking at poster presentations and thinking hey that sounds like that worked or wow that didn't or however it went and I really appreciate the work and the time that they take to do that and it's pretty humbling to find out what you don't know and um, and it's very powerful to take back to your clinical setting some other ideas um, the other thing is you is I want to help um, providers and nurses to um, communicate with other providers how they are feeling but um, really say it in a professional way and I think that sometimes this um, is not um, really um, looked at strongly enough in for, in our profession sometimes. And um, just learning to speak in the in the language that others that you work with on the peripheral, such as administration or other clinical staff, if we can speak their language, um, often, other doors will open. And so those are some things that um, has been really helpful in um, learning to discuss uh, moral distress in the clinical setting. I do still work in clinic. Um, I um, Right now I work in family medicine at Fort Belvoir um, Army. Um, it's like an Army Post um, in Alexandria, Virginia, and um, there's a brand new Fort Belvoir Community Hospital there. It's very beautiful, and I work in their family medicine clinic. We're really busy. I take care of active duty military and their families, as well as veterans, and I am still affiliated with an emergency department in Alexandria, Virginia, um, but I don't work there as often as I used to, um, and I am going to continue to work um, for the military as a contractor one day a week um, when I start um, um, doing the research at Johns Hopkins beginning in August. Well, it sounds like you have a lot going on, Jennifer. And <laughs> I know Fort Belvoir very well. My in-laws used to live right near there. And my um, my father-in-law was a retired Army colonel. So we used to go to brunch at Fort Belvoir from oh, time to time at the officer's club. So great. I know the place <laughs> that you're talking about. And that's really wonderful. And so it sounds like this postdoctoral work will be really interesting to you at Johns Hopkins. And you're switching to early childhood development outcomes. So this is going to be a very different direction for you, but I'm sure you're going to find it just as satisfying. Do you have any any thoughts about where you'll go after that? Do you have further professional goals at this point? I do. Um, so my... Um 
so one of the things when you you learn about when you decide that you're going to achieve to um, obtain your doctorate in nursing is that I wanted to go into academics. A lot of um, a lot of providers um, have really done a lot of amazing work with me, developing me as a nurse practitioner. And so I've always wanted to teach. And um, so when you're doing your research, you learn um, that there is kind of a some other fellowships and different um, things that you can do before you become uh, a faculty member of a university. And so one of the um, committee members I had, um, Dr. Linda Bullock, um, she is the Associate Dean of Research at um, University of Virginia. She told me, she goes, I really think you should try to do a postdoc. Um, and she um, knew some folks at um, Johns Hopkins. And then my husband's still active duty Air Force. And so he was thinking, um, am I going to retire? Isn't he? And so um, he's now going to be working at the Pentagon. And so um, that kind of um, made what I was going to do next, um, it kind of made it my decision um, kind of more narrow focused. <laughs> so I went ahead and put in, I um, applied for this fellowship and I amazingly um, received um, uh, this um, fellowship. And it's um, different from my moral distress work that I did um, in my dissertation, but I did do a quantitative study for my dissertation and, and I really wanted to get some, get more um, fluent in the research world of nursing. And so I um, talked to Dr. Gross about, she um, helped develop at Rush University, um, the Chicago Parenting Program. And um, it is to help parents of children between the ages of two and five um, to help with their behavior, to mold their behaviors um, uh, during during those formative years before they go to kindergarten. And um, it's really geared towards families that about trying to um, work with their children, children in other environments besides play, just play. And so um, it's really exciting work. Um, they're really finding that it does um, really help parents um, with children who have some um, aggressive behaviors they see like in daycare or other environments. And um, it's really, the, the literature is really um, compelling that if they can um, um, help um, children um, have more socially acceptable behavior as in early childhood, then they, they do really well in school and it makes a big difference in their life. So um, I'm really excited about doing this research because it's something that I see in practice because I work in family medicine and um, I have a lot I have a lot of parents come in during their well child checks and asking questions about parenting and um, we know that in um, our society that mental health um, resources are really scarce and here I am in a military environment where we have a lot of resources for our families but mm -hmm. there's but there's not sometimes a lot of time in uh, these families lives um that they i need to give them some help 
at that moment. And that's kind of what my proposal to Dr. Gross was, is I'm really interested in how do I help other providers in family medicine and primary care help um, parents with um, early childhood behaviors. So I'm really excited about um, starting this um, fellowship with her. Well, we're very excited for you too, and we look forward to talking with you more about future research that you do over the over time, especially in terms of moral distress and nursing. And we really want to thank you for being here with us and bringing this issue of moral distress and nursing to the our attention and the attention of our audience. I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions and comments and interest in the, the entire topic. Great. Thank you very, very much for having me. This was a wonderful experience, and I appreciate your time. Well, and we appreciate your time too, Jennifer. So as always, we try to keep in touch with all of our previous RNFM radio guests and, of course, to all of our listeners out there. Stay tuned because we will be uploading her, Jennifer's profile up on rnfmradio.com and, of course, this audio as you'll be listening to it uh, right here on rnfmradio.com. So, Jennifer, thanks again so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you. So, you know, Keith, I wanted to actually just go back to what Jennifer said before. Now, we've heard often where nurses are talking about advanced education, additional education, but I even think I want to even dial it back to where it could be a little bit more accessible for nurses. And I'll give you an example is that she talks about the lingo. So talking the talk, walking the walk. And, you know, for example, I have uh, some of my colleagues around the office and I see them every now and again, and they're reading certain magazines that are very business oriented or might have some policy in there and whatnot. And I, and I, and I approach them and I was like, did you just take up a new interest in this? And, and I will have them respond to say, you know, I hear you in these meetings and you're talking about, you know, how, how we can grow and how we can safely grow and how we can meet the need. And I use a lot of the sort of the business buzzwords or the healthcare buzzwords and they themselves want to really just even start there by educating themselves. And they'll grab like their business magazines or their policy mags or, or anything to do with healthcare or that might inspire them. And so I think it could even be accessible, and it really is. I mean, just get on the interwebs and you'll see it. I think nurses especially, we just need to apprise ourselves of some of the language and what's going on. And, and really, what do, do, does the executive team want to hear? And, and not just what they want to hear. I know you have to believe in it and you have to align yourself with it. But I think we could just even go as simple as that, start educating yourself there. And then there might be something that you're interested in that would even further that desire to maybe go back to school and then get an advanced degree. Right, right, exactly. And, you know, and you're also talking about lingo in terms of moral distress, moral residue, the crescendo effect, all of those terms as well. We need to become familiar with those terms so that we can talk the talk with the people in power, you know, those holding the purse strings, the ones that we'd like to actually help us to, um, to bring some of these issues to the fore so that we can help ourselves really be more, be more effective in our work. So yeah, there's many salient points there and, and a lot more we could talk about in terms of all of these issues. Agree. And again, and it's not about trying to unite and shout as loud as you can just to shout, but we do need to be articulate. We do need to convey a unified message, but a, an educated message t- to say that, okay, we know what's going on, so how can we affect change? Right, exactly, 
Exactly. So Kevin, the, you know, the moral distress is obviously something that we all know about. It's something, it's not new to any of us in terms of how it affects us on a daily basis. Just as now, maybe we have a little more language to use around it. We have language to, we helps us explain what's actually happening to us. Agree. And probably should have said this earlier. I think this is definitely a show where you might have wanted to take a few notes, but the beauty about it is, is you can click rewind and go back to a certain part of this podcast. And that's the beauty of it because it will be archived uh, indefinitely here out on rnfmradio.com because I, I agree with you. I think there are some points here that people will want to go back to and, and really get down to that finite definition of the differences of what's going on and really what's going on in their practice. So, and then Obviously, I think we can appreciate the analogies or just those statements of the residue. And of course, when you were talking about the waves, because I really think that we can relate to that. We certainly can. That's right. And, you know, there's lots of waves to ride here at RNFM Radio. There's lots of more great shows coming up, Kevin. We have lots of guests scheduled over the next few months. Most of those are actually pre-recorded shows, not live Google Hangouts. So you can just watch RNFM Radio on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Google Plus, anywhere, or just go to rnfmradio.com to see when the podcasts are uploaded, usually about a week after the recording. So there's lots coming up. There's going to be a lot to talk about as the year we enter the second half of 2014. And Kevin, I, I really look forward to walking that path with you. Well, I agree, Keith. And of course, having our listeners along and that, of course, growing audience that we know is out there for RNFM radio, because really it is about our nursing profession, about our clinical uh, just elevation here that I think is going on. So we really appreciate all the listeners out there. And, and so much, we hope that today and every day that you're in some way uplifted, motivated, and ready for something that moves the needle for you. Innovate and create, find passion in your life and your career each and every day. And of course, as always, care for yourself while caring for others. And we look forward to having you back here with us again on the Pulse of Nursing on RN. FM radio. 